Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, part 15 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Before we start this week's installment, I would like to ask a small favor. Two, actually. If you've gotten this far, we're almost at the exciting conclusion. I assume it is because you are enjoying this book. I ask that you consider posting an honest review on the book's page at Amazon.com or on Goodreads. The links are in the show notes. It will help others discover this book and my other novels. Additionally, I'm hoping to garner support for a nomination at PodcastAwards.com. It would be a tremendous honor if you would visit the site and vote for Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs under the fiction category. Again, the link is in the show notes for this episode. These are two small things in addition to subscribing to and sharing this podcast, that you, my listeners, can do so I can continue bringing you my audiobooks and short stories. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the Dead Kids Club. 30. Rebecca and Amy start clearing the table as the group breaks up. I see Barb in the living room standing at the window by herself. Barb, she turns to me. I have to ask. She nods, then pulls me as far away from the others and Brian as she can. Brian has a gun, she explains. He's had it for years, used to go shooting with his dad. I never liked it, and when his father passed, I thought he got rid of it. Lately he's been... I caught him just sitting with it, staring at it, and I knew, I just knew that he was trying to work up the nerve to kill himself. I don't think he would do that, I say. I've been married to him for over 25 years. I know that's what he was thinking. I can't lose him too, she says. When Rebecca came to us and explained what you were planning to do, he came back to life. He came back to me. I can't go on without Betsy and Brian. Whatever I need to do to keep him in my life, I'll do it. I can't lose them both. I nod, understanding her reasons now. They're not too different from my own. 31. Justin Berman's schedule during the days he conducts his outreach to local high schools is fairly consistent. Of those of us who work, some have called in sick, others have taken vacation and personal days, or scheduled imaginary afternoon dentist or doctor's appointments to make sure we're available during the critical hours when Justin is on his own. We work in pairs, rotating locations from day to day. One couple covers the McAllister residence, another stakes at the high school where he's speaking that day, and a third drives through the neighborhood where his drug pad is, taking note of any police or gang activity that could interfere with our operation, and another tracks the guys in the black SUV. Rebecca has been putting in half days, 
She shared her good news about the baby with her co-workers and is using morning sickness as an excuse to come and go as she needs. I've been working overnights, having convinced my new supervisor, Sam, that I can get more done while the systems are relatively quiet from the day's noise. Vitaly's goons reliably follow me back and forth. I note that they are using at least two different vehicles, and perhaps as many as three or more different teams, one of which Rebecca reports is following her as well. Evading them is going to be the biggest challenge, but we have a plan for that. During the day, I sit in front of a jigsaw puzzle spread out on the coffee table in our living room. I've designated certain quadrants of it to represent the various locations we are monitoring, and the way the pieces are arranged and assembled serve as visual mnemonics to me to help track Berman's movements. I'm doing well keeping it all in my head, but with all the moving parts, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. So the puzzle is my way of keeping track. To the casual observer, it looks like a puzzle being worked by someone who is in no hurry to complete it. To me, it's a map of Justin Berman's life. With a swipe of my hand, any semblance of order that anyone might chance to perceive would be erased. I'm surprised to find myself feeling proud. Everyone is doing exactly what they're told. They're following the rules I set down for them. The ephemeral messages we send back and forth are brief and use the code words we had agreed upon. The first two days of surveillance are practice. I'm very confident that Justin won't indulge in his private illicit rituals until Dawn is out of town. According to the Foundation website, she is scheduled to address a session of the state legislature today regarding a bill that would support the Foundation's work. Today will be the day. After weeks on the road, in three days at home, wearing the mask of a reformed, repentant sinner, seeking penance and absolution, I'm confident that instead of returning to the empty house Justin shares with his fiancée, he'll run as fast as he can to his personal drug den and engulf himself in the sweet bliss of his sins. I can feel it. I send a message to the group. Be ready. The purple egret is hungry. Okay, as codes go, it's a bit corny. Rather than assigning a specific code word to Berman, I've instructed the group to use a combination of a random color and a bird name. So far, he's been the yellow goose, white dove, brown pigeon, blue duck, and mauve hummingbird. A reference to any retail store is his home. The schools use random university or college names. And for the drug pad, we use restaurants. I hope my reference to the purple egret being hungry is not lost on the others. Today is the day he gives in to his demons, and the day I unleash my own. Today is the day he dies. 32. Rebecca comes home around lunchtime. We make sandwiches and eat in the living room. My burner smartphone is on the coffee table amid the puzzle pieces, and we watch as updates trickle in, and then ten seconds later are automatically purged. I add or connect puzzle pieces with each missive. Rebecca rolls her eyes at my ridiculous spycraft, but I don't want to miss anything. She finishes her sandwich, gets up, and crosses to the window to check on our minders. Still there, she reports. She glances in a different direction. Both of them. Then she turns to me, a hand over her lips as if she said something she shouldn't have. Oops, I mean, the moles are in their burrow. I grimace. She's mocking me. Rodents refer to the mob goons in my code. But I know it's just to lighten the tension. You only have to use the code words when you're messaging. Well, you can't be too careful, she taunts, as she sits back down beside me and gives me a warm, lingering kiss. Her teasing and her kiss work. I smile appreciatively. So, she says, now we just wait? I nod. His outreach program for today is scheduled as an after-school assembly, so he'll likely be tied up with that until around five. He left his house about an hour ago and stopped at Denny's for lunch. 
Denny's? she asks. Yes, an actual Denny's, not his drug pad. Larry uses a specific location, so that means, I know, she says, offering a quick peck on the lips. Just teasing. You really think this is the day? I do. Well, I have to drop off some brochures for that Hassan Grand, but I have a couple hours to kill. The way she traces the inseam of my pant leg sends a clear message as to how she wants to fill those hours. But as tempted as I am, now is not the time. You know we can't. She takes away her hand and gives me another kiss, this time lingering close. I know, she whispers. Being pregnant just makes me so horny. I remember, I say with a smile. After, I promise. After, she agrees. Then punctuates it by gently biting my lower lip and tugging on it till it pulls free. My phone dings with the alert of a new message. We both shift our attention to the screen, reading the text before it vanishes. The olive ostrich is at Ole Miss. Must be Yule. He's so alliterative. Yeah. Rebecca picks up the TV remote, finds a mindless afternoon judge show to pass the time, then kicks off her shoes and nestles next to me. I set a puzzle piece that indicates that Berman is at the school, then put an arm around Rebecca and let the rhythm of her breathing and the soft pressure of her body against mine provide a welcome distraction from the waiting. 33. I am alone in the apartment, watching Judge Judy berate a young girl for loaning her boyfriend thousands of dollars when he had no means to pay her back. Rebecca left a couple hours ago to drop off brochures and help a co-worker prepare for an open house. We have several rendezvous points depending on Berman's actions, but for now, we're just waiting. A message lights up the smartphone screen. The Sienna Sparrow has graduated from Stanford. This is it. I tap my own message into the screen. Off to the movies, which is my very clever code for me going to the movie theater, where I'll sneak out the back and make my way to the train station and meet up with Rebecca. From there, Amy will take us to Berman's place. Springing the rat trap, Brian messages, indicating that he and Yule will meet Rebecca at a predetermined location where they will help Rebecca lose the mobsters and the SUV following her. This is the trickiest part of my plan. I thought about having Rebecca meet me at the movie theater, but that would give them the opportunity to have an extra set of eyes, and I couldn't predict with any confidence that both sets of goons would wait in the parking lot. I grab my backpack, which is stuffed with surgical suits and rubber gloves and paper booties. We'll suit up when we get to the spot between the buildings where I had previously sneaked into his ground floor apartment. A message dings. See you at Thomas's place, is the message from Rebecca. Thomas the Tank Engine was one of Nick's favorite TV shows. His place is the train station. 34. I arrive at the movie theater, park, grab my freshly charged smartphone and my backpack, and head for the entrance. A new message appears as I cross the parking lot. Rats caught in the trap. I let out a sigh. The plan was to have Rebecca drive down a narrow alley, and then, once through, Brian and Barb would drive down the same alley in the opposite direction, hopefully blocking the mob goons from following her. The message indicates it was a success. She only needed a few minutes to double back and elude any chance they could pick up her trail, and the Browns would play the confused older couple who were afraid to back up in a tight alley. I buy my movie ticket and glance over my shoulder at where my own SUV shadow is parked. One of my followers slams the door of the passenger side and heads for the theater. Shit, he's following me inside. I head into the theater I bought a ticket for and take a seat a few rows back from the screen where I can keep an eye on the entrance. Maybe he just needed to use the men's room. Then, the leather-jacketed man enters the theater. He casts a passing glance in my direction, 
as if he's looking for an empty seat in the sparsely populated auditorium, and climbs the stairs to take a vantage point where he can see me. Damn. I think fast, check my watch as the pre-movie presentation plays on the big screen. I get up, head for the exit, then cross back toward the concession stand. While I wait for my popcorn and coke, I catch a glimpse of my tail peeking around the corner. He spots me at the concession stand, then ducks back into the theater. I pay for my snacks, then return to my seat in the now dark theater, setting my drink into the cup holder and start nibbling at the plain popcorn. A message dings on my smartphone, and I rush to pull it out of my pocket before the ten seconds elapse and it vanishes forever. The Lavender Huron is heading for Arby's. Berman is on his way to the apartment. I make a show of being uncomfortable in my seat, shifting and fidgeting. Then I stand, stuff my popcorn in the adjacent seat, and inspect the chair I was sitting on as if searching for something mechanically wrong with it. I angrily flap the seat down, swearing under my breath. Then I give up, grab my soda out of the cup holder, and move a couple seats down. When I reach over to retrieve my popcorn, my fingertips graze the top of the box, and I spill the entire contents onto the ground. The movie is just starting. I grab the empty container, leave my soda and other belongings behind, and exit the theater, hopefully giving my unwanted guardian the impression that I'm heading back to the concession stand for a refill, and will be back shortly. Instead, I dump the container in the nearest garbage bin and stride confidently toward the rear exit, not daring to look back. I step out into the afternoon sun and quicken my stride till I'm around the corner and on my way to the nearby train station. Only then do I cast a glance behind me. There is no one following. But it won't take long for the goon to realize he's been duped and collect his partner and start searching for me. If they're in contact with their counterparts following Rebecca, they'll know that she also escaped their scrutiny and realize something is up. By then, hopefully, we'll be safely tucked away in the back of Amy's minivan and on our way to Justin Berman's apartment. The backpack. I left it in the theater. I grab the smartphone and I'm about to key in the abort code when I realize I'm a hundred yards from a drugstore. I know Rebecca will demand we proceed even without the crime scene countermeasures. There are alternatives. We can carefully wipe down our fingerprints like I did on my first visit and burn our clothes and shoes. But the drugstore is an opportunity to resupply and I have enough cash with me for just such a contingency. Whatever deity looks over revenge-seeking vigilantes has got my back today. 35. The Silver Seagull is sitting down to eat. Yule and Wendy have successfully tracked Bremen to the apartment. He's there. I'm at the train station with a plastic bag filled with rubber gloves, paper booties, a couple oversized t-shirts, and a half-dozen other sundries to make it look like a more typical visit to the drugstore. Rebecca should be here by now, but she's not. Amy pulls up in her minivan. I get in, slide into the back. Where's Rebecca? She asks. I don't know. She got away from her tail, but I haven't heard anything since. I pull out the smartphone and tap in a message. Waiting at Thomas's. Are you close? Maybe she hit traffic or there was an accident. I shake my head. No, something's wrong. She wanted to do this with me. The phone dings. Just barfed up lunch. You'll have to deal with that crazy crow without me. Amy has the same message on her phone. What is barfed up my lunch code for? She asks. I shrug. I think she actually barfed up her lunch. Maybe the morning sickness is really coming on. Maybe she has nerves, Amy suggests. Not likely, I think. Whatever it is, I'm glad. It'll be safer with just me. I could, Amy starts to suggest, but I cut her off with a look. Or we can get one of the others to help. No, I answer resolutely. 
I've gotten them involved as much as I want to. All of you can walk away from this clean. I want to keep it that way. We have a window right now and I'm going to take it. I don't want to have to go through all of this again. Okay, Amy agrees. Let's go. Amy puts the van in gear and drives away from the station. I stare at the screen just in time to see Rebecca's last message fade away. 36. Yule and Wendy make a pass by Berman's apartment and give the all clear. We're back on plan. I slip on the t-shirt that suddenly proclaims my affection for a certain brand of beer, the cap and sunglasses, and stuff a couple pairs of rubber gloves and shoe covers into my pockets and step out of Amy's minivan onto the street around the corner from the apartment. Amy drives off and I casually check the surrounding buildings for anyone who may be paying attention. The street is deserted. I continue on to the alley that cuts behind Berman's building. It's devoid of people as well. There's no sign of the gang that harassed and assaulted me on my previous visit, nor anyone else that could interfere or be a witness. I start to wish Rebecca was here, but just thinking of her and knowing that she and our baby are safe gives me the resolve I need to move forward. I not only promised Rebecca, but Barb as well. One last killing, one last child murderer safely tucked away in his own grave, and I can finally move on with my life with Rebecca and the baby. I can't let those thoughts distract me. I remain vigilant as I stroll as casually and purposefully as I can down the alley to the yard behind Justin's apartment. I open the gate and proceed to the space between buildings. Once I'm in that secluded gangway, I allow myself to let out the breath I've been holding and go over to the window for the kitchen. I slowly peek inside and immediately duck back out of sight. Berman is in there, talking on a cell phone. I can hear his voice faintly through the single-pane glass. Yeah, right. I know you took my shit. You're the only one who knew about it, and you've got my keys. Bullshit. No, I know exactly where I left it. I don't fucking care. Just bring me another stash and we'll talk about the money later. Hey, do what the fuck I tell you. You owe me. That's right, asshole. The call ends. A moment later, I hear the TV come on. I move to the living room window and risk another peek. Justin sits in a chair with his back to the window. He has a six-pack of beer on the tray table next to him, two of which are already empty. He chugs one, then opens another and starts sipping it. He's watching the television, but from where he is, he has a clear view to the bathroom and bedroom doors. I could probably slip from the bathroom to the bedroom without him seeing me, and then if I can get him to come to the bedroom, I can surprise him there. Fortunately, he's playing the television loud, so I should be able to get through the bathroom window without being detected. I creep along the outside wall till I get to the bathroom window. I work the screws out of the security grate and place it below the window where I can use it as a step up. The bathroom window is still open. Won't need the mini glass cutter I have tucked in my back pocket. I take a quick look around to make sure I'm not being watched. It's all clear. I put on the rubber gloves and slip the paper booties over my shoes. The gangway is gravel, so I'm not worried about shoe prints there. I step up on the grate, then slip my arms through the window and worm my way through until I'm balanced, with my stomach resting on the sill, my torso and legs dangling in midair on either side of the wall. I listen, making sure I haven't alerted Berman. I hear him switch channels on the TV, then back to the ball game. I lean forward, reaching for the sink below me, and I hear a rip. My t-shirt has caught on the corner of the window frame. I try to work my way off of it, but I only end up making the tear bigger, so I move forward. My hands rest on the edge of the sink, and I work my hips through the window. As I do so, more of my weight is transferred to the sink, and I hear a loud crack. The caulk that was holding the sink against the wall gives way. 
and my weight is pulling it even further, threatening to rip it out entirely. The only thing holding it at this point are the thin copper pipes it's connected to. I can't go back. If I want to get out, I have to come in first. I pull myself through, walk my hands down to the toilet. It shifts under my weight as well. I feel the sink giving way, so I shift all my weight to the toilet, but my hand there slips and slides into the bowl. My fingers wedge into the bottom drain of the toilet as the rest of my body falls through the window. My head crashes into the floor as my shoulder slams into the edge of the toilet bowl and the rest of me tumbles down with a thud. Did I yell out in pain? Did I make enough noise to be heard over the sound of the baseball game playing in the next room? My hand is still wedged in the toilet, and I have to roll myself back up to untwist my arm enough to wrench it free with a jerk that ignites a burning pain in my shoulder, like someone trying to pry my arm off with a dull knife. I manage to get to my knees and realize that my shoulder is dislocated. I try to get to my feet, but a dull ache at the top of my head where it hit the floor turns into a dizzying spell of vertigo, and I nearly black out. The room comes back into focus. I have to get out of here. I try to raise my right arm, but the pain is intolerable, and I leave it dangling by my side. The window is out. Make a run for it? Would I be able to sprint to his front door, get out, get to a place where I can send my pickup message and get away before he catches me? Before I can answer my own question, I realize that the sound from the television is gone. I reach for the toilet tank lid with my good arm, but it's too heavy. I can't get a grip on it. I scan the room for anything else that can be used as a weapon. The towel rod? I grab it and twist it from its brackets. It's a lightweight piece of plastic, but it's something. What the hell? A voice asks from the bathroom doorway. I turn to see Justin Berman squinting at me through the beginning of his alcohol-induced buzz. I grip the curtain rod firmly and plant my feet. The bathroom is tiny. I don't have any room to outmaneuver him. Hey, I know you, he says. I look up at him. His face is even more puzzled. You're that guy from the party. What the fuck? What the hell are you doing in my bathroom? I answer by jabbing at him with the towel rod, which only serves to make him angrier. Then something clicks in his head. Random dots connect in his beer-muddled brain, and his eyes widen. You must be the fucker who stole my shit. I swing at him with the towel rod. He grabs it before it can make contact with his face and twists it out of my grasp. I'm going to die, I realize. My last thoughts are of Rebecca, the baby I'll never know, and her last words to me. You'll have to take care of that crazy crow on your own. In the split second, as Berman raises the towel rod to strike at me, I realize there's something wrong with the message. Crazy crow. Not red or blue or chartreuse, but crazy. That's not a color. She knows the code. I drilled her on it till she could recite it in her sleep. That message didn't come from Rebecca. Or if it did, she was trying to tell me something. She was trying to tell me that everything had gone to shit and to call it off. I reach in my pocket for the smartphone. The towel rod comes down against my neck. I ignore it and switch the phone on. It comes to life with a messaging app running. I key in the abort code. Fly. Just as my finger is about to hit the send button, the towel rod comes down again, this time on my wrist. The phone flies out of my hand. I scream in pain. Berman pushes me back, and I get tangled in the shower curtain. My head bangs against the wall, and I collapse into the tub, cracking my tailbone against its edge. Berman starts kicking at me with his hard-heeled boots. I raise my good arm to block the blows, but... Most of them get by my ineffective defense posture, cracking ribs, breaking my nose, knocking teeth loose. You thieving motherfucker, he screams at me, 
as the blows and kicks rain down. You're a dead man, he promises. You're fucking dead. I feel reality start to slip away from me. The pain is so intense now that I hardly feel it anymore. I close my eyes, lower my arm, and let go. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.